Well, good evening, Hallows Church. My name is Jeff. I serve as one of the pastors here with the Hallows. Um, it's good to be with you tonight. Good to see you, as always, especially in this capacity as we get to open our Bibles together and explore this passage in the book of Mark tonight. Um, before we do that, I'd just like to uh, say that I, I know many of you know that the ball is kind of rolling up on the north end of the city as the Hallows, by God's grace, seeks to establish a new expression of the Hallows Church up in the Linwood neighborhood of this region. And so I just put that out there, and I'd uh, ask you to be thinking and praying about that and for us as we take steps in that direction um, in the coming days and weeks and months. In the meantime, tonight, I'm excited and very much looking forward to opening our Bibles together to the chapter that Naomi just read a couple of minutes ago. That's Mark chapter 12, verses 35 to 44. So if you could head over there in your Bibles, that'd be great. And so we're kind of finishing up this evening, the 12th chapter of the book of Mark, and it's been an interesting chapter. In a lot of ways, it's been a pretty pivotal chapter, and what I mean by that is one of the reasons uh, I say that is that this chapter, it marks the very end of the public ministry of Jesus. And so as we move into chapter 13, beginning next week, we're going to see Jesus begin to limit and, and restrict the remainder of his teaching to a much smaller group of disciples as he prepares them. And as he prepares himself for, for what he knows would be coming next. And if you've been tracking along with us the past couple of chapters, you may have noticed a particular pattern that's been developing. What we've seen Jesus, in fact, in, this, in the latter part of chapter 11 and the entirety of chapter 12, fielding many questions as his ministry is coming to a close. We see him engaging and interacting with multiple different groups of people along the way in this chapter. And it's believed that each and every one of these interactions actually took place on a single day. It was a, a single day of many questions being posed to Jesus by those, in fact, who were not particularly friendly towards Jesus. In fact, as we've seen, these questioners were really not looking for answers at all as much as they were looking for ammunition, you see, they wanted to test Jesus in every way. They wanted to, to challenge him, and they wanted to do what they could to try to uh, trip him up and to, to take him down. But we've also seen Jesus kind of taking it all in stride, haven't we? We've seen him addressing and fielding these uh, various questions from these various different uh, groups of people who held very different perspectives and priorities about the world around them. And it's an important chapter in that we get to witness something of a collision of various worldviews held by various people and groups of this day. And not only that, we've also got to see how Jesus interacts with and answers those worldviews in some pretty instructive ways. And so it's an important chapter as well in helping us not only to see some of the things that Jesus is for, but also to see some of the things that Jesus is against. And along the way, we've seen Jesus engaging and interacting with these various groups. We've seen him uh, engaging and interacting with the Pharisees along the way at multiple points along our journey in the book of Mark. These Pharisees, you will, you will, you will recall, are very uh, legalistic in their thinking and their beliefs. These Pharisees, they were building their identities and their lives on the things that they did, on their moral performance and on their obedience to the law. And many of them believed that their standing before God was based on all of the many things that they did for God. 
So these guys, they were very moralistic in their thinking and in their beliefs. They were, in a sense, the, the religious conservatives of that day. We've also seen Jesus engaging and interacting with the Sadducees along the way here, and these guys held very different beliefs. This group denied the supernatural. They denied the spiritual realm altogether. They denied the survival of the soul beyond death. You see, these guys, they thought that the here and now is all that they had and all that we have. And so these guys were very much materialists in their beliefs. They believed strictly in a physical a reality. And so we could say that they, in fact, uh, are somewhat secular, you could say, in some of their thinking. We've also met with the Herodians along the way, haven't we? These Herodians, they were conspiring with the Pharisees to destroy Jesus, even though the Herodians and the Pharisees normally would never uh, interact, much less collaborate on anything. These Herodians, though, they were very much loyal to and supportive of the Roman government of that day. And at least in that sense, you could say this group was highly nationalistic in its, in its beliefs and in its objectives. And last week, we saw Jesus engaging and interacting with the scribes, didn't we, who were uh, the highly regarded experts of the law, of the Mosaic law. They were lawyers, if you will. And we're going to talk more about the scribes today. But fundamentally, what we've seen in the latter part of chapter 12, or 11 and all of chapter 12, in and through all of these exchanges and these questions, is very much a, a collision of various worldviews and perspectives about God, about reality, and about life. And what we've also seen again and again is Jesus giving surprising and unexpected answers to each and every one of these groups along the way. And doing so in ways that would very much break down their assumptions and their presuppositions about God's plans and purposes in the world and in their lives. And we saw last week that Jesus had dealt with this, this long day of questioning pretty effectively and pretty decisively, in fact. Because in Mark chapter 12, verse 34, we're told that he had so confounded his opponents he had so bewildered his opponents that nobody wanted to ask him any questions anymore. But just because these groups seem to have given up their own line of questioning doesn't mean that Jesus was done. Because it's in this moment, on this day, in which many questions were being asked of Jesus that, that Jesus says, I have a question of my own. On this day of many questions, you see, Jesus asks the question of the day. Look at verse 35. Jesus says this. He says, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. And so Jesus asked the question, So how is he his son? And so that's the question. Why do the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David while David himself calls the Christ his Lord? Put another way, how can the promised Christ be both David's son and David's Lord? Now this might seem like a pretty obscure question, a pretty nuanced question at first glance. And, and the truth is it's definitely a question that's somewhat tailored to this time and the, to this place. 
And it's based on who the people thought the promised Christ was going to be to them and for them. But we need to explore this together for a few minutes this evening because as always with God's word, I think there's most definitely something here for us. In a way, we see Jesus is posing a riddle to his listeners here. He's raising an apparent conundrum concerning the Christ of the scriptures. And so what exactly is he doing here? What is he trying to achieve? Well, first of all, Jesus is starting with a premise that everybody believed at that time. He's starting with a premise that everybody believed and understood at that time. And the premise was this. It was that that the prophets of the Old Testament predicted the coming of this mysterious figure, this this Christ, which means anointed one, this Savior and this, this Messiah who was going to come and to put everything right for Israel. You see, God made many promises to his people about this coming Christ who would come to, among other things, bring good news, to heal the broken, and to bring liberation to God's people. And this was the premise, and it was one that was pretty deeply ingrained, in fact, in the people of Israel at that time. And the, uh, the premise, in fact, was pressing on them all the more at, during this time, because the truth is they were living at this, in this juncture of history under Roman occupation. And so you see, the people of Israel, they wanted a deliverer at this time very badly. They expected a deliverer, and they expected this deliverer to be someone who would liberate them from from the hand of the Roman Empire who was occupying their land and ruling their lives. And one of the key expectations of the people of Israel concerning this coming Christ, as Christ, as we've, as we've talked about in recent weeks, was based on one of the things the prophets had to say about this coming Christ, and that, w- that is that he would be a, a son of David. You see, the Old Testament, it spoke quite clearly that this coming Savior to be sent by God would be a descendant of David. He would be coming uh, from the seed of David, from, from the line and the throne of King David. And so the hope and the expectation on the part of the people of the day was that this new Davidic king would be coming and he would, he would be bringing relief for God's people from the oppressive circumstances in which they found themselves. But through this question, in this moment, Jesus seems to be suggesting instead to these people that they weren't thinking rightly about all of this. In fact, he's suggesting here that they had missed something critical about this coming Christ, this son of David who the Bible speaks of. Jesus is saying to the people of the day, if you're understanding all of this rightly about this coming Messiah, this promised Christ... He poses the question, how then do you explain Psalm 110? You see, Psalm 110 is the passage that Jesus is quoting from directly in verse 36 of chapter 12 of the book of Mark. And you may want to head over to Psalm 110 if you you have your Bibles open because we're going to spend a little bit of time there. But Psalm 110 is also a psalm, it's a psalm that's written by King David And most all of the people of the day saw this psalm as a messianic psalm, one that was talking about the coming Messiah, one that was talking about this promised Christ. And so Jesus, in this moment, is challenging the scribes. He's challenging the biblical scholars of the day about their interpretation of Psalm 110. 
And of course, this challenge by Jesus was not designed to deny anything about this text, but rather to draw out its proper meaning as intended by the Holy Spirit, who we're told in this passage inspired David to write this. In fact, Jesus' question here is very calculated. It's calculated to provoke thought. It's calculated to provoke reflection about the assumptions and the presuppositions that his listeners had both about the coming of the Messiah and the character of the Messiah. And so Jesus poses this question, what do you make of uh, the first verse of Psalm 110? That's what he's asking here. And admittedly, again, this is somewhat subtle. It's somewhat of a technical argument in, in nature, but we need to try to unpack this briefly so that we don't miss the thrust of what Jesus is doing here. And we know we also need to pay attention to this particular passage when we consider that Psalm 110 is the most frequently cited passage from the Old Testament that's cited in all across the New Testament. In fact, the Psalm 110 is cited more than 30 times, alluded to more than 30 times in the New Testament. And so it's safe to assume, I think, that there's something important here for us. And so let's look at Psalm 110 for a moment here. Again, written by King David. Let's look at verse 1. It says, The Lord said to my Lord. The Lord, and in your Bible, the Lord, the first occurrence of Lord in verse 1 is in all capital letters, or it most likely is. And it says, The Lord in all caps said to my Lord. That second occurrence of Lord is not in all capitals. So the Lord in all capitals said to my Lord, not in all capitals, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. And so we've got two occurrences of the word Lord here in that opening verse, but interestingly, they're not the same word. They're two different words in the Hebrew language translated as Lord in your Bible. Now the first occurrence of Lord in Psalm 110 verse 1, the one in which, the one which is in all capital letters, it's a reference to Yahweh or God himself. This is the sacred name of God used throughout the scriptures. It's the name God gave to himself. It's the name he communicated to Moses. In fact, when Moses asked the question, who should I say sent me? When God sent Moses to confront the Pharaoh of Egypt in Exodus chapter 3. Okay, so far so good. That's Yahweh, the Lord in all capitals. But then In this same verse of Psalm 110, again written by David, Yahweh seems to be having a conversation with someone also referred to as Lord. But this time, the word Lord is not in all capitals, as I've noted. It's actually a different Hebrew word altogether. The second occurrence of the word Lord in Psalm 110 is the Hebrew word Adonai, which is another word used to refer to God and typically has the meaning of sovereign one, or king, or the one who is absolutely sovereign. So both Yahweh and Adonai are terms used to refer to God. And yet, interestingly, here in Psalm 110, we find Yahweh apparently calling someone else Adonai. The Lord said to my Lord, Yahweh said to Adonai, And so this is the riddle, this is the conundrum concerning the Christ that Jesus poses to his listeners that day. David is not saying the Lord said to himself, he's saying the Lord said to my Lord. He's making reference to two different people here. And so it seems that God is speaking to someone else who also 
carries the title for God. And Jesus is saying in this passage, he's saying to his skeptics and his challengers as his final question before his public ministry comes to a close, he's saying, what do you make of this? If you're thinking rightly about all this, who then is David's Adonai? Who is David's Lord in Psalm 110? The truth is, you see, every culture asks questions about who Jesus is in their own ways that are unique to their historical and cultural context. And this question we're talking about here is indeed pretty particular to the people of that day. But fundamentally, what Jesus is getting at here is a question that transcends every culture, I would suggest. What he's asking is this. He's asking, have you considered that your understanding of the promises and purposes of God are far too small? Are you, have you considered that your understanding of the promises and purposes of God are, are deficient or even defective? What he appears to be saying is that when you understand uh, Psalm 110 rightly, you will find that the Messiah, who will of course be a, a descendant of David, that much was clear and understood and accepted, but this Messiah will also be much more than a mere descendant of David. And this single verse could easily occupy an entire sermon or series of sermon, but what this conundrum concerning the Christ boils down to is that is that there's no other answer, there's no other correct way to understand what Psalm 110 is saying. There's no other way to make sense of Psalm 110 as a messianic psalm unless you agree and realize that this, this coming Messiah will not just be a human figure, he'll also be a divine figure. He's saying you'll never be able to make sense of what Psalm 110 is saying unless you come to understand and embrace the reality that this promised Christ will not only be David's son, he'll be God's son, come into David's line. You see, fundamentally, as he often does, Jesus is breaking down their view of reality. He's very much exposing the deficiencies of their worldview, and he's pointing them, them to, a, to a bigger reality about God and about himself. And he's doing so, he's doing all this in the, the very seat and the center of religious authority in Jerusalem. He's doing this in the temple of Jerusalem. And so Jesus, he's making the audacious claim in the temple that day that Psalm 110 is referring to him. He's saying, I'm not only David's son, I'm, I'm God's son. And I'm not only David's Lord, but I'm your Lord too. And so that's quite a claim. In the midst of the biggest and most significant Jewish religious festival on the calendar, Jesus shows up and claims authority. He claims lordship over the very temple of God and over everything and anything and anyone in it. And so this Jesus, he continues to present a picture of a reality that's utterly unique from what people were expecting. It's different than any other worldview, in fact. It isn't on the same scale. It's not in the middle. It's not anywhere in between. In a sense, as he answers all these questions posed to him, as he interacts with these different worldviews and as he poses this question, this, this conundrum of his own to his listeners, 
I think what he's really getting after for them, as well as for us, is that the entire, the entire spectrum of human thought when it comes to understanding who Jesus is and his role in the world and in our lives are, are all too often misplaced, misguided, and mistaken. No matter if you're talking about that culture then or our culture now. You see, he's challenging his listeners to think outside the human box because the truth is human categories are are inadequate to encompass the reality of who he is and, and what he came to do and what he's doing right now. Jesus is saying that despite appearances or expectations, I am both a a divine figure and a human figure. Come not to meet your expectations. Come not to to give you a nice and comfortable life. Not to to put down your temporal enemies of this day or that day, but but to put down the ultimate enemies of the whole human race. To put down sin and to disarm evil and to destroy death. As Jesus brings his public ministry to a close, he's challenging his listeners to expand their thinking about him. He's challenging his listeners and us as well to question and to challenge our assumptions and our presuppositions about him. He's challenging his listeners as well as us with how we see and respond to the reality that he's not only David's son, he's God's son. And he's not only David's Lord, he's... He's our Lord too. Now after posing this question and challenging his listeners in this way, things shift gears pretty quickly in this passage. And what we're going to see here is first a caution and then a contrast. In fact, what we're going to see in the final verses of chapter 12 is a very compelling contrast of character that's presented to us that I believe is intended to to both warn us and to encourage us but not necessarily in the ways that you might expect. In fact, this final scene in Jesus' public ministry is going to uh, show us here uh, two additional approaches to life, two additional worldviews. He's going to show us here two ways of going about living our lives. First, we see the scribes. Now, these scribes, they were legal They were experts in the law. They were experts in the Mosaic law, and they were teachers of it. And they were were regarded highly. They were respected much among men. You see, these scribes, they were part of the religious establishment in Jerusalem. They were part of what's known as the the Sanhedrin, and this was the group that held uh, kind of the supreme authority over the affairs of the people, uh, the Jewish people in Jerusalem. And so these guys, they had much power, they had much influence, they had much uh, respect and prestige. But look at what Jesus has to say about these guys. Look at how Jesus views these guys, these guys who the world regarded so highly. He says in verse 38, he says, beware. He says, watch out for people like these. Look, in fact, at exactly what he says. It's pretty scathing. And look in verse 38. He says, Beware the scribes who like to walk around in long robes. They like to be greeted in the marketplace. They need and like to have the best seats in the synagogues and places of honor at feasts. It says they devour widows' houses 
and for a pretense make long prayers. So these scribes were in every way highly regarded by the world, and it seems as a result they were pretty full of themselves. These guys, it seems, were living their lives and building their identities on the approval and the affirmation and the attention of men, even if that meant at times they were exploiting those around them that were weak and vulnerable. We see that in verse 40. And they were doing all these things that it would appear to to continue building and bolstering their own egos and their own reputations. And so those are the scribes. They seem pretty self-absorbed, don't they? They seem even a bit uh, obnoxious, even. And then immediately in verse 41, we're presented with a very stark contrast to the scribes. We, We see the widow come into view in this passage. Now, apparently, at this point, Jesus, after this long day of fielding many questions, was taking a bit of a a breather. It says he sat down in verse 41. He sat down across from the treasury, and he watched. He just watched the people offering their tithes to God. Now, if I was a certain type of preacher, I might say to you that Jesus is always watching when you give your tithes to God. But I'm not going to go there because that's not the point of this at all. But God's people, they brought their donations and their tithes to the temple in Jerusalem. That's how things worked back then, and that's what was going on in this moment. In fact, so much was given to this temple and distributed by and through it that it was something like a central bank of the nation of Israel. In fact, the person who administered the temple treasury was one of the most important, one of the most powerful officials in all of Israel. Second only to the high priest. And we're told that Jesus sits back and observes from a distance as many rich people put in large sums of money. And then along comes this widow. Mark describes her literally as one poor widow in verse 42. And we're told that she put in two lepta. Two small copper coins. In fact, these were the two of the these were the two or these were the smallest coins in circulation in that day. And although the scribes and the Pharisees and others in this chapter were were so often doing things to be seen and to be regarded by those around them, this woman most likely did not want herself or her meager offering to be seen by anybody. Whereas the scribes were highly regarded by the world, but as we just saw, were very much rejected by Jesus. This woman, who in all likelihood had been rejected by the world, she was being noticed and regarded by Jesus. This widow's offering was utterly insignificant from a worldly perspective, and yet this is the woman who captured the attention and the approval of Jesus on that day. So much so that in verse 43, we're told that he called his disciples over to talk to them about it. You see, Jesus wanted to highlight for his disciples the compelling contrast between the scribes and the widow. You see, those who put in much were were giving out of their abundance, we were told. They gave to God what they could spare, but they were not giving in any way that impaired or impacted their lives or their lifestyles. They were, in fact, giving out of their margin. 
But the widow, she, she had nothing to spare, did she? She had no margin, but what she did have, she gave. What she had, she surrendered and, and sacrificed. She gave up control entirely because she trusted that God would provide for her. The widow was certainly not living for the approval of men. That much is clear. And I would suggest that strictly speaking, she was also not living for the approval of God, but rather I think she was, I think she was living in light of the approval of God. I think she was living and giving because of and as a consequence of the approval of God that she already had and experienced in her heart and in her life. And that's how she could trust him so fully. And check this out. Jesus says that this widow who put in what amounted to the most insignificant of pocket change, Jesus says she gave more in verse 43. She gave more than everybody else from his perspective. She gave more than all the others who were contributing that day. When it says the widow gave all she had, the word that's used there is actually bios, which means life. And so there's a sense in which this verse is telling us that she gave everything to God, everything that she had, even her whole life. And so Jesus is telling his disciples, and I think he's telling us here, something about God's balance sheet. He's telling us something about hear about the divine exchange rate. And what we see clearly here is that God is not so much concerned with what we give as, as he is with how we give and why we give. But as I studied this passage, I was, I was struggling at first to understand this little story about the widow, though it's, it's very heartwarming and it's a wonderful it's a wonderful message about giving and about generosity, but I was struggling to make sense of why, why this was the final scene in the public ministry of Jesus. I was struggling to get a handle on what this scene was doing at the end of all these other accounts of Jesus answering the questions of those who were skeptical of him and those who were even hostile to him. This story about the widow, it almost seemed like some sort of add-on at the end that was unrelated to the rest of the chapter. But as is often the case, the more I studied, the more I explored and dug into this, the more I came to realize there was something more there. The more I came to realize that this little story about the widow in a lot of ways is actually the climax and the completion of what uh, Jesus is trying to say to each one of us and to anyone and everyone who have questions about him or who have uh, doubts about him. I think this contrast between the scribes and the widow is meant to actually uh, point us to something beyond itself. And here's what I mean by that. You see, it's pretty easy for us, isn't it, to sit back and to critique and criticize the scribes and those around us who may be like the scribes. It's pretty easy for us to point fingers and to, to look down and to judge others who act in those sorts of ways. And it's pretty easy as well for us to look very fondly and very warmly at the widow and to think how we need to be more like that. But friends, I actually do not think that the take-home message here is simply that we need to, to be like the widow and we need to not be like the scribes. 
I think there's more going on, and I think the, more going on with this contrast that's been put before us. In fact, I think, I think one of the things we can and should take from this contrast that's put before us is that, is that you and I, in reality, we will, we will always be like the scribes at some level. And on top of that, you and I will never be like the widow fully. You and I, we seek approval, we seek acceptance and applause in our lives, often in the wrong places and in the wrong ways and through the wrong people. Some of us are looking for it outside ourselves. Others of us are trying to kind of generate it from within. But we're all doing it in one form or another. We all seek approval and affirmation, whether it be in our schoolwork or in our careers. We most certainly do it on social media. We're looking for approval and affirmation in our appearance and in our relationships. In fact, I think our deep-seated need for attention and approval and applause, and more specifically, our tendency to look in the wrong places for those things, is in every way a default tendency of the fallen human heart of each and every one of us. We all struggle with this, don't we? In fact, science suggests that if you're like most people, you have a a clear, hands-down favorite topic for most of your conversations, and that is yourself. On average, people spend 60% of conversations talking about themselves. And this figure jumps to 80% when communicating via social media platforms. And the science behind this suggests that one of the reasons we do this is because it, it feels good. One study at Harvard scanned the brains of people who were talking about themselves or who were hearing affirming things said about themselves. And the results of the study showed that on, on these brain, brain scans, the things that hear, uh, speaking about yourself or hearing about yourself, these things lit up on these scans, the parts of the brain associated with motivation and reward. These are the same parts of the brain associated with the pleasure of eating comfort food. And these are the same parts of the brain associated with taking a hit of cocaine. One author put it this way, activation of the system in the brain when discussing the self suggests that self-disclosure and the affirmation of others are inherently and physiologically pleasurable. In other words, these things give us a neurological buzz. And so we're talking here about a powerful dynamic of the fallen human heart, I would suggest. Our searching and our striving for approval is a default tendency of each and every one of us. We're all looking for it. We all want it. We all, we all in fact, need it deeply. But the question is, where are you looking for it? And how are you looking for it? And in that respect, every one of us, deep down, is not so much different than the scribes, are we? And if that's true, the real question that we need to consider this evening is whether we have the uh, intellectual honesty, whether we have the humility and the the self-awareness and the psychological insight to see and acknowledge this in, in ourselves. And so do you recognize that? Are you able to see that in yourself? 
we need to see that in ourselves because only as we do can we begin to, to see our bondage to it and to begin to see our desperate need for the grace of the gospel to reset continually how we're seeking approval and acceptance around us. And also, only as we begin to see these things in ourselves can we begin to see clearly what this uh, contrast, what this widow is intended to teach us in this passage. Because she's far more than a moral example for us. I think this widow is very much pointing us beyond herself. This story is, in fact, pointing us to another who would also give up everything. This widow, she's more than an example of one who gave everything. She's a pointer to Jesus who also gave everything. And so what we need to take from this passage is not so much that we need to be more like the widow and less like the scribes. Rather, what we need to see here is that when we look at the scribes, we're, we're kind of looking in a mirror. We're looking at ourselves. And when we look at the widow, we're, we're looking at Jesus and we're being pointed to, to Jesus. You see, this Jesus, who's not only David's son, but David's Lord, who's not only David's son, but, but God's son, he's going to move very intentionally and very deliberately toward the cross as we continue our journey in the book of Mark. And as he does, he's going to show to us the ultimate example of putting others first, of putting God first by giving and sacrificing everything. Jesus had everything and he gave it up. He, he became poor. He emptied himself. He gave up everything he had when he didn't have to. And we need to see him clearly in this way before we can ever begin to be changed by him. I'd like to kind of wrap things up this evening by returning for a moment to Psalm 110. In verse 36 of this passage in Mark chapter 12. And so we talked about that a bit. We talked about what David said in that verse, right? He, the, he said, the Lord said to my Lord, and we unpacked that a bit, and we talked about what that meant and who that was making reference to. But what we didn't talk about was what the Lord actually said to David's Lord. And so what did Yahweh say to Adonai in Psalm 110? Or as most scholars interpret uh, this verse, what did God the Father say to God the Son in Psalm 110? He said, The Lord said to my Lord, Yahweh said to Adonai, Sit at my right hand. Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. And so that's the reference here is the right hand of God. You see, this is a, a figure of speech that has a particular meaning in the Bible. The right hand of God, you see, it represents the position of, of ultimate power, the position of, of divine authority. Listen for a moment to some of the references to the right hand of God in the New Testament. Paul says in Colossians chapter 3, verse 1, If then you have been raised with Christ... Seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Paul in Romans chapter 8 verse 34 says, Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, 
who indeed is interceding for us. Listen to what Stephen said in Acts chapter 7, right before he got stoned to death. He said, he looked up and said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. The author of Hebrews in chapter 1 verse 3 says this, he says, After making purifications for sin, Jesus sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And listen to what Luke says in Luke chapter 22, verses 66 to 69, as these same scribes we've been talking about today were in the process of putting Jesus on trial to be crucified. It says this, When the day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council, and they said, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he, he being Jesus, said to them, I will tell you, if I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. And then Jesus said this, he said, But from now on, the Son of Man, referring to himself, his uh, resurrected and ascended self, shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. Now, based on today's passage and passages like these, most believe that Psalm 110 is a, it's a prophetic passage about Jesus Christ who, who after accomplishing his work on the cross, would take up his, his proper position of supreme authority over the universe and over everything and everyone in it. And he would do so seated at the right hand of God where he is presently ruling and reigning. And so when Jesus posed this question about Psalm 110 and said, what do you make of this? He not only saw the passage as defining something about his identity as the Christ, as the Son of God, as David's Lord, he also saw it as defining the result or the, the outcome of his work and his mission that, that upon doing what he came to do, he would be exalted at the right hand of God. And do you know what else David says you'll find at the right hand of God in another, another psalm that he wrote, Psalm 16? Listen to this, Psalm 16, verse 11. He says, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. And he says, at your right hand, God, are pleasures evermore, forevermore. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So David says, on the one hand, Jesus is exalted at the right hand of God in Psalm 110, and he's also saying you'll find something else there too at God's right hand, and that is pleasures forevermore. Pleasures forevermore at the right hand of God where Jesus rules and reigns. Interestingly enough, the word translated as pleasures in Psalm 16, verse 11 it can also be translated as compliments. So there's a sense, I think, in which this verse is saying that at the right hand of God, which we know is the position of authority that Jesus occupies, is also where we find our, our compliments or our approval. It's where we find the transformative pleasures and joys of God's approval and God's acceptance and his applause and his accolades as we put our trust and our faith 
in the gospel. Because the truth is, apart from the gospel, our need for approval will always be destructive and misplaced. But with the gospel and in the gospel and through the gospel, we find the approval and the applause and the compliments that we've been looking for all along in the place where we were supposed to find them, in the place we were originally designed to find them, at the right hand of God, in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Friends, only the gospel can free us in any significant way from our need for the approval of men. And it does so first by humbling us, by showing us our need and our brokenness, and then by overwhelming us and transforming us in spite of us with the approval of God. And that can and should change everything. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for your goodness and your grace in our lives. Father, thank you for the the truth of your scriptures. Thank you for your gospel and what it's done for us, what it's uh, doing in us and through us. God, please would you use the words spoken on this night to challenge us, to convict us, to expand our thinking about who you are and, and all that you're doing in the world and in our lives. God, would you overwhelm our hearts and our minds in this moment with the reality that, that in the gospel we have, we have the only approval that we ever need. In Jesus' name, amen.